From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thank you for joining us on Space Nuts. This is the astronomy podcast with me, your host, Andrew Dunkley, and joining us as always from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm uh, always well, even when I'm not. Yes, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Hang in there. Now, and you're doing fine? I believe I am, yes. It's... <laughs> you look good. You look... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, today we're going to be talking about um, the five naked eye planets. These are the planets we can see from Earth without anything but our eyes, which is uh, t- fascinating and terrific. And they're all going to be lining up. Well, not literally, but we'll be able to see them all over the course of the next month or so, which will uh, be exciting for backyard astronomers and uh, experts alike. Uh, we'll also be talking about the European Space Agency's plan to uh, to, to send... Uh, a new mission to the moon to uh, basically drill a hole in it, uh, which is, <laughs> which is you know, got a good reason. Uh, and um, some people might not agree with the reasoning, but, uh, hey, you know, it was done in a science fiction film, so let's do it for real. And uh, let's also look at what's happening in a part of the world that probably wouldn't be at the forefront of your mind when it comes to astronomy, but uh, when you start to really get down to the, the nuts and bolts of it, uh, they do some extraordinary things in Africa, uh, including the Meerkat Telescope, which uh, we will discuss very, very soon. But first, uh, Fred, over the next uh, month or so, uh, backyard astronomers will be uh, getting their uh, partners very, very angry because they'll be outside quite a lot at night looking at the five naked eye planets. Please explain. Oh, the, well, they will. Uh, the good thing is that they, they don't have to stay out very long because two of them will set... <laughs> So, so they're only there. They're only there actually in the early evening, uh, early part of the evening. So the situation we've got is that um, three of the uh, the planets, in fact, the three outer planets, the ones beyond the Earth's orbit, uh, that's Mars, uh, Jupiter, and Saturn. They've been in our night skies for quite a while. In fact, for uh, a couple of months already. Uh, with Jupiter now very prominent in the uh, northwestern sky um, at sunset, um, and Saturn and Mars forming a triangle with uh, a reddish star by the name of Antares, which is the heart of the Scorpion. It's a, the brightest star in the constellation of Scorpius. Uh, Antares actually is a word that means rival of Mars because its red colour and its brightness uh, mean that it is often effectively confused with Mars. Uh, mm. There isn't any chance of confusion at the moment, though, because Mars, which is also red, 
is much brighter than Antares. So we've already got these three stars in the uh, sorry, these three planets in the sky. Um, what will happen during the course of August is that uh, after sunset, and not very long after sunset, so we're still talking about the west, the evening twilight, in the western sky we will start to see the two inner planets, uh, Venus and Mercury. Venus, of course, is completely unmistakable because it's so bright. It's the brightest of all the planets, often confused with aircraft uh, having their landing lights on and lining up for the runway, but very seldom lands. Um, and uh, Mercury, a little bit harder to see, but as the month goes on, it will be pretty obvious that the, that the little speck of light uh, accompanying Venus will actually be the planet Mercury. So for the... Uh, actually... I was going to say for the first time in a while, but it's not the first time in that long, because at the beginning of this year, beginning of 2016, uh, we had a situation where all five naked eye planets were visible in the morning sky. That's before dawn. This is a lot more palatable to those uh, those people who don't get up early enough to see the stars in the morning. Um, what we're now getting is all five naked eye planets in the evening sky. However, um, the uh, the situation will not recur uh, for a couple of years, October 2018 will be the next time that we'll see all of them together. Now, the question I want to know is, will we be able to see any moons of these planets at any stage? Uh, yes. Um, you need uh, binoculars uh, or a small telescope, or if you've got one, a big telescope. Uh, <laughs> but the, the one to look out for, of course, is Jupiter. Um, uh, as I said, it's prominent high in the north uh, northwestern sky at the moment uh, in the early evening. Jupiter uh, bears a good look through binoculars, especially if you can put the binoculars on a tripod or something just to keep them steady, because <clears throat> otherwise, you're, you know, your trembling hands tend to blur out the details. Uh, but mm. um, with, with binoculars on Jupiter, the first thing you notice is that you, you can see a disk. You're not just looking at a point of light. Uh, Jupiter's big enough that we see it as a disk, even with low magnification. But if you've got, as I said, if you've got um, uh, a way of stabilizing your binoculars, and especially if you're using a little telescope, you may see one or more of the Galilean moons. These are the the four bright moons of Jupiter that were discovered in early in 1610 by Galileo. Uh, you may also find it worthwhile having a look at Saturn. Uh, and that, uh, as I said, is in a triangle with Mars and Antares. Saturn's not that distinguished in the sky, but if you get the binoculars on it, even, you know, modest binoculars like seven, seven magnification or eight, uh, that will show that the uh, this speck of light is actually elongated. It's slightly elongated. And what you're seeing there is, is the rings of Saturn. Maybe, just maybe, you might see a, a, a tiny dot accompanying it, which is the brightest moon of Saturn, the biggest moon, uh, Titan, uh, the second biggest moon in the solar system. I, I have only ever once stood in my front yard and put up a, I think it was a camera, actually, with a really big zoom lens. Yes and uh, put it on uh, one of the gas giants, and I can't remember which, but I, I could see the moon. Yeah. So it, must, it might have been Jupiter. Yeah. But uh, I, that was breathtaking. For someone, you know, an everyday person like me, to be able to stand in their front yard and point this at something so far away and, and actually see physically in real time these moons, it was, it was, I was awestruck. Did, did you press the shutter and take the photograph or...? 
I tried, <laughs> but you know, it's just with a with a, a basic SLR system, it's 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 still a very difficult it, shot it is, to take. Yes, that's right. You've got to you've got to do a bit of tinkering there with the setting. Yeah, it but kept yeah. trying to focus, and I thought, well, yeah. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> That's right. Yes, you need you need manual focus. We look. It's um, the thing is that modern equipment that you know uh, most people have uh, in terms of photography, and it doesn't have to be an SLR. Um, some some little point and shoot cameras are pretty good when you stick them behind a telescope, uh, but the, um, the the capacity we have now to record images of celestial objects is breathtaking compared with uh, the way things were only 20, 30 years ago when you had to go through the whole process with hypersensitizing your film and processing it afterwards and, you know, all, all this um, chemistry to, to bring out the uh, faint images that are recorded there. Yes, and leaving the back door open and standing on one leg. And, <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> those, those Some of us still do awesome. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, over the next month and towards the end of the month, it really gets interesting. So uh, backyard astronomers will uh, get some, some bonus time. In that, the, that's right. The just just um, on, on the 27th and 28th, it's worth, well worth having a look because Jupiter and Venus will be close together. In fact, uh, as close together as the, uh, the, as the full moon is in diameter, they'll be half a degree apart, which will be well worth seeing. Very good. You're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Zero G and I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, let's move on to uh, another venture in the wide world of the universe, and that is one of the European Space Agency. Uh, they've just signed a contract to build uh, something they're going to send to the moon. They're going to go up there and drill a hole. <laughs> so <clears throat> that's, that's basically the nuts and bolts of it. Yeah. What's What's going There's on? There's got to be a joke in there about uh, the cheese, uh, the holes, <laughs> but I might leave that it's, to you. Yeah, European Space Agency, it's a Swiss drill. <laughs> there you go, that's what it is. So the European Space Agency indeed has signed a contract recently with actually the Russian Space Agency, Roscosmos. Uh, Roscosmos is planning a mission to the moon, a landing mission, uh, which is uh, designed to, to fly in 2021. And I guess the the name of this mission uh, kind of gives a hint as to what its purpose is. It's called Lunar Resource. Uh, And Lunar Resources uh, are something that we've really only thought about uh, in a sort of science fiction way until now. You're quite right. But the, um, the idea is that the moon may well contain things that could be useful to future space explorers. In particular, if there's... Uh, if there's a uh, content of water in the rocks of the moon, and we believe that there is, uh, then you can possibly extract that water, uh, separate it into hydrogen and oxygen, and what you've got there is essentially free rocket fuel. Not quite free, but, uh, but certainly, um, certainly something that could be used by future space explorers. So there is interest in exploring the moon from a from a you know a resources point of view in indeed in prospecting the moon and that's why the instrument package that the europeans are building is called prospect because that's what it's going to do um, so the contract is for a prototype of a drill that will drill down to about a meter and a half into the lunar regolith that's the the posh word for the lunar soil uh, we call it the regolith um, and and to explore the rocks underneath that and find out exactly what sort of materials are present um, this drill 
by the way, is based on the one that was flown on the Philae lander, which uh, landed on Comet 67P, churyumov gerasimenko but uh, failed to live up Show to... off. <laughs> Show off. <laughs> Somebody's got to say it. I'm not going to be able to say it for much longer because Rosetta <laughs> is actually the mission's coming to an end in September. Well, they switched Philae yeah. off the other Yes, day. They've, they've already switched Philae yeah. off because um, there's been no signal from it for over a year and um, the the resources that are needed to monitor Philae can, can be better used uh, to make sure that the Rosetta spacecraft itself stays up and running for the remainder of its life, uh, which uh, means that, you know, we should get some very dramatic pictures towards the end of that because they're um, not actually crashing it into the comet, but trying to touch down uh, a, a spacecraft that was never designed to land on anything uh, mm. gently on the surface. Uh, anyway, that's a, an aside. The um, the deal with the Roscosmos is for a drill a bit like the one on Philae, but probably a consider considerably beefier, mainly because the moon has much uh, greater gravity than comet Churyumov-Gerasimenko. So it's an interesting step forward, uh, and it's one that has scientists excited because uh, the the target for the the mission to land and the place where on the moon where uh, lunar resource might touch down is yet to be decided and there are various competing ideas one of which is a place called the Aitken Basin which is a, a, a dimple in the moon, a large dimple in the moon's surface actually on the back side of the moon the side that's away from the earth uh, and very close to the moon's south pole so it's a really interesting part of the moon it probably formed when something collided with the moon during the first well the first half billion years of its existence that's going back perhaps four billion years um, but its geology is very interesting. One thing that uh, I would wonder about, if that is the case, though, is how you communicate with a spacecraft that has landed on the far side of the moon. And that probably involves uh, a secondary uh, orbiting spacecraft that actually relays the signals. That is all yet to be decided, I think. But we will see these developments unfold as time goes on. Yes, that would add cost to this mission, and they're not sparing any expense. This uh, this current deal's worth eight million euro, but I think ultimately they're looking uh, at sixty five million uh, over time. And and this is all, as you said, aimed at uh, looking at potential resources. Um, you know, if, is there enough water there for us to make rocket fuels? Uh, what else is there? They, they've certainly portrayed. Uh, the harvesting of the moon's resources in in um, various films over the years. The most recent one, I think, was called The Moon, uh, where uh, they they used clones to to do the mining. Although they didn't know they were clones at the time. No. But uh, <laughs> but um, I, I would imagine that uh, such a, a future venture uh, as to uh, gathering resources on the moon, controversial as that would be, uh, would be robotic. Uh, that's probably true. Yes, the the, um, the the likelihood is that any kind of resource uh, re resource um, extraction from any celestial object other than the Earth will be done uh, robotically. Um, I, I, I just uh, finished this segment, Andrew. There's there's a, a lovely quote from the company uh, or a representative of the company, the Italian company that's that's building this drill, uh, and that is the quote is the new prospect to drill. It's truly cutting-edge technology. I, I love oh. that. <laughs> oh, gee, it took them a long time to figure yeah, that one out. Right. 
Actually, I'm hoping they can lend it to us before they send it up there because uh, I'm involved in creating a new radio station here at the moment and uh, the moon has got a lot of basalt on it. Indeed it has. And uh, we, we discovered in trying to drill a hole to put our uh, antenna tower in that we hit basalt and we needed to drill a hole of two metres and we got down one and we couldn't go any further. The basalt was so very hard, it became... Um, well, too expensive to go any further, so we, we had to stop, and this drill sounds like it might be the go. Yeah, I, well, in, in in your case, you could just, you know, move the drill somewhere else and find... That's off the rock. <laughs> uh, that might be... That might but it be... wasn't a drill, it was a spade. Yes, a spade, yeah. That might be more difficult. Drill high-tech stuff we're working with here. <laughs> uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and Andrew Dunkley. Okay, we checked all four systems and with a go. Space Nuts. Last but not least, Fred, we're going to head to a part of the world that probably wouldn't be foremost in people's minds when it comes to astronomy or, uh, or telescopes. But um, I think people would be surprised to learn it is actually a focal point of uh, telescope technology, and that is Africa. In fact, uh, we're going to talk about a collaboration uh, of countries from all over the world that are focused on Africa because uh, it's got some unique properties, has this uh, this continent, and um, you're going to explain it better than I can. <laughs> uh, yes, I hope so. The um, the s- southern part of Africa is uh, indeed a pretty good place to do astronomy. Um, the optical astronomers, the people who use visi- telescopes that use visible light, like we do at Siding Spring Observatory, near Coonabarabran, um, they, they have a, really a world-class observatory at a place called Sutherland, which is in the High Karoo, uh, north of Cape Town. Um, and that uh, observatory boasts one of the biggest telescopes in the Southern Hemisphere. It has a mirror 10 metres across. It's called SALT, which is an acronym for the Southern African Large Telescope uh, and uh, basically does leading-edge research. Uh, Actually, on a shoestring budget, the telescope was built with economies in mind and performs very well uh, with those limitations that that the the, the low cost brought in. Um, Another telescope that's not very far away uh, in kind of global terms, it's further north in Namibia, is uh, an instrument called HESS, the High Energy Spectroscopic Survey Telescope, uh, which uh, was built to look not at visible light, but at at gamma rays coming down uh, from space, which interact with the Earth's atmosphere and cause faint flashes. And you need a big telescope to detect those. You don't need a particularly accurate surface. So this thing is more of a light bucket than a... you know, than a Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, But the HESS instrument is on a site where it very seldom rains in Namibia. It's a brilliant site to do optical astronomy, uh, and it's a very impressive facility. I've visited both those facilities, both SALT and HESS, and been um, duly impressed by the spectacular engineering that's been involved and the way they capitalise on the the excellence of the site. But the reason why we're talking about uh, Southern Africa at the moment is because of a different kind of telescope, a radio telescope, one that looks at radio emissions rather than light or uh, gamma rays. Um, That is also benefited by 
the conditions in southern Africa because what radio astronomers need is what's called radio quietness. In, in other words, you need a region where you, you, you're not swamped by signals from mobile phones and other communications, things mm. of that sort. Um, and lo large parts of southern Africa are like that. They are free from radio interference. And so this has become uh, almost an iconic site for the idea of building telescopes. There is another iconic site, uh, uh, sort of half a world away, uh, where similar conditions prevail, and that is in Western Australia, in rural Western Australia. And these two sites, uh, Southern Africa and Western Australia, actually combined with the rest of Australia and New Zealand, were the competing sites for something called the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, which has been planned for more than a decade. It's a multinational project involving many nations, uh, but they elected some years ago that they would choose between Southern Africa and Australia and New Zealand as the site to, to build this array of thousands of dishes that would mimic uh, one square kilometre telescope, in other words, a million square metres. And mm. in the end, uh, that competition turned out to be a draw because the, the governing body of the SKA decided to build part of the telescope in southern Africa, and that's the high-frequency end of the, uh, of the instrument, um, and the other half in Australia and New Zealand. That's the low-frequency end. And one of the reasons why they made that... And, and, Fred, and Fred, the New Zealand part? The no-frequency end. <laughs> well, you could say that, yes. <laughs> All right, just, you know, every opportunity I get, I like to have a go at them because they beat us at everything else. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we apologise to our New Zealand listeners for... <laughs> Actually, they're lovely people. It's a lovely country, and I'm going to go back. It's a great just place, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Just cutting back to the chase. Uh, so we've got the low-frequency end of the spectrum, Um and uh, that sort of suits the kind of science that is done in the two countries. One of the reasons for that choice of, of splitting the, the, um, the spectrum into two and letting both countries have a, or both parts of the world have a stab at building the SKA was that both South Africa and Australia had gone a long way down the track of building uh, what, what are called pathfinder instruments, like prototypes for the square kilometre array itself. In Australia, we have something called ASCAP, the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder. Um, and in, in South Africa, they have an instrument called Meerkat. Uh, and Meerkat is also an acronym. I, I think it comes from uh, CAT, which is probably something like the Karoo Astronomical Telescope. Um, uh, and then you've got to make it Meerkat by adding something else. Uh, Give it a bit of a local native speech. Exactly, that's right. Uh, so Meerkat has been in the news recently because it's now been sort of properly opened up and unveiled. It's a very spectacular set of instruments. And it's carrying, it's something like a flagship, really, for the aspirations of Southern African science. Um, it's been heralded, excuse me, been heralded in particular by the South African science minister as being a very worthy uh, a, a way of spending public money because of the educational benefits that come from doing science of this kind. It's, it's very inspiring, very educational. Yeah, not without controversy because there's been some criticism about pouring money into something like a telescope when, you know, Africa has... Uh, predominantly got a lot of poor people yes and um that yeah that, that, that's always the big argument between 
all sorts of research, but uh, astronomy particularly. Yeah. I mean, if it, you know, the, the way I always think of this is if it was your last dollar, of course, you'd, you'd go towards um, humanitarian uh, uh, enterprises. But governments don't work that way. They, they have to look to the future. They have to invest in the future. And usually it's a relatively small proportion of a national budget that goes to this kind of research. But it's well worth doing because of the benefits that it will undoubtedly bring down the track. Mm. And you never know who this might inspire exactly. in a country yeah. or in a nation exactly. or in a continent like that. And, um, you know, it could be a rags to riches story. That's absolutely right. Well, actually, astronomers don't earn that much, do they? <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, it might be a story, a, a rags-to-riches story in the sense of Nobel Prizes and things of that sort. How's that? Very good point. And one final point, uh, I'm I'm glad it's named Meerkat because they like to stand up and look around. Oh, that's so right. <laughs> even though it's a radio telescope, but, you know, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Mm. Fred, always lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk again. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, so, uh, thank you for listening. As always, don't forget to tell your friends, share it on Facebook, uh, do some reviews on iTunes, tell them what you think of us and, you know, be nice occasionally. And, uh, and, and join us again next week on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.